We're reading Psalm 22. For the director of music, to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord... Do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This is God's word. Do keep the Bible open. We're going to look at these extraordinary words in depth together. Let's pray as we do so.
Our Father God, as we look at the most awful and wonderful moment in all of human history, we pray that you would give us real understanding. We pray that you would strip away our familiarity if these are familiar words. And that you would open afresh our eyes to see the horror of the cross and the wonder of your love. Amen. The most painted scene in all of human history is the death of Jesus Christ. For centuries, artists have been depicting it from pretty much as early as humans were were painting seriously. And yet in 1951, Salvador Dali managed to paint it in a way that nobody else had depicted it before. Every other painting of the cross had been from the perspective of humans looking up, looking up at uh, the figure being crucified above us on the cross. But Dali turned things round. He looked at it from God's perspective, looking down on his son on the cross. It was an extraordinary painting, stunningly powerful. But here in Psalm 22, we actually get an even more amazing perspective than that of Salvador Dali. As we read the words of this psalm, we're not looking up to the cross or even down on the cross. We're looking into the soul of Jesus Christ. In this psalm, we get to see what did it feel like for Jesus to die on the cross. Now, how can I say that? Psalm 22, as you look, you'll see it's written by David. If you know anything about the Bible, you probably know David lived a thousand years before Jesus. He was king of Israel a thousand years before Jesus was even born. So how can I say that this psalm, written by David, tells us what Jesus was feeling on the cross? Well, do you remember the reading that we had just before the confession from Mark's Gospel? As Mark... And the other eyewitnesses quote what Jesus said as they witnessed his death on the cross. Mark records Jesus crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 34. Jesus chose as he died on the cross to quote Psalm 22 to explain what he was going through. And then as you read through the rest of the psalm, it matches up with the, with the eyewitness accounts of his death. So uh, verse 1 of Psalm 22, as I've just told you, Mark 15, 34. Mark, verses 6 to 8, Mark 15, 14. Verses 12 to 13 are picked up by Mark in Mark 15, 27 to 30. Verse 15, John chapter 19, verse 28. Verse 16, Mark 15, 24. Verse 18, Mark 15, 34. Throughout the eyewitness accounts of the death of Jesus Christ, the details that are picked up match the detail of this psalm. In 395 AD, Augustine declared in his Good Friday sermon, the passion, that is there, the suffering of Christ, is recounted in this psalm as clearly as in the gospel. Through this psalm, we are present, witnessing the crucifixion. He then goes on, it was a herald giving advance notice of the coming of the judge. I think we're probably right to think of Jesus praying through this psalm as he hangs on the cross. And so as we dig into this psalm, we are peering into the soul of Jesus Christ. 
in the darkest hour of human history. Uh, Spurgeon, I've put the, the quote on your sheets there. Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, said this, For plaintive expressions uprising from unutterable depths of woe, we may say of this psalm, there is none like it. It is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the lacrimatory of his last tears, the memorial of his expiring joys. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. Spurgeon tells us what our attitude should be as we come to this psalm, holy reverence. But he doesn't tell us why we should bother studying it. Okay, so it tells us what it's like for Jesus. How is that, how is that useful to you and me today? Well, the cross is the heart of Christianity. It is the climax of Jesus' mission. And the more you understand the cross, the richer your faith will be the deeper your assurance will be, the greater your grasp of the character of God will be. You will live differently only when you grasp the cross properly. As we do so, we will love God more. We will love and serve others as we know we should. We'll fight sin and 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 just lose the, the grip of worldliness on our hearts. We'll be bolder in telling others about Jesus, inviting them to guest events. And we'll live more confidently as God's people. We all know that freedom, love and hope are things that we should have. They're things that we long for. And the key to freedom, love and hope is to have a deep and abiding sense of what Jesus did on the cross. Grounded in your heart. Okay, let's, uh, let's get into it. We're going to look at verses 1 to 21 tonight, and then we'll return for verses 22 to 31 on Easter Sunday, because the, the, the psalm hinges, and it turns from desperation to hope between verses 21 and 22. And I hope you're in the, the right frame of mind, in a reverent frame of mind, because these are serious words. This is not a time to be feeling flippant as we look at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a very flippant society, a very silly culture. We like to mock everything. These are not words to mock. Look, the first 21 verses, uh, you've basically got three throbbing waves of suffering. Each time there's a description of, of what's going on, of the suffering that's going on, and then there's a response of prayer. And each time the description of suffering gets longer. It's as if the, the pain is growing, the, the agony is intensifying until it becomes overwhelming. And we reach death. But each time David looks in on his suffering and then he looks up to his God. Each time. Each time. So three things. Uh, You have forsaken me, but you always delivered your people. Uh, Verses 1 to 5. Now book 1 of the Psalms, before we actually get into this Psalm, it's interesting. Book 1 of the Psalms is really all about David. He is the dominant character. Most of the Psalms are written by him. And in in many ways, it's all about David, the great king. He is the anointed king. That's where we get the word Messiah. That's just the Hebrew word for the anointed king. And he is the one who will defeat God's enemies 
so that the people are safe and looked after. And Psalm 18 is a, is a sort of pivot psalm in the middle of book one of, of the Psalms. And Psalm 18 is a great psalm of the victorious, mighty king who trusts in God the rock and destroys the enemies of God's people. And from then on, there's lots about God's mighty king who destroys God's enemies and enjoys God's victory. So if you look with me at um, Psalm 18 and verse 50, we'll dive in there. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing love to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever. Then Psalm 20, verse 9. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Answer us. Psalm 21, 1. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories that you give. And Psalm 21 ends. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I find no rest. It is utterly bewildering. It's disorientating to to arrive in Psalm 22 when you're you're tracing the story of God's victorious mighty king who who saves his people and it's as if you you wake up from a dream and find yourself in a real living nightmare. How can this be? How, How can God's promised savior king, the anointed one who will bring God's victory and save God's people, how can he suddenly be forsaken, crying out to no answer? Now, David knew real danger in his life. He had a a number of years when he was a fugitive, being hunted down. He fought in a number of battles, so he knew real danger. But nothing, no event in David's life can account for the words that he wrote in this psalm. But what David writes poetically, Jesus experienced literally and theologically. Peter explained in Acts 2, as he preached on Pentecost, Acts 2.30, David was a prophet, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the Messiah. And never does David speak more of the Messiah than when he writes in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that Jesus himself would cry out as he dies on the cross. Now, the beginning of Jesus' ministry was announced by a voice of God from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And now in his hour of greatest need, his beloved son cries out and God answers with nothing. And it is this silence from God that Jesus so feared That a man as brave as Jesus sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before just as he anticipated what was to come. It was this, abandoned by God, cut off from God, cursed by God. To be God forsaken is to know absolute despair. You see, so long as God is with you, there is always hope. God can, he can smash Pharaoh with plagues. He can split apart the sea so it becomes dry land. He can turn stones into bread. He can raise the dead. If God is with you, there is always, always help. But if God forsakes you, then abandon hope, all who enter. This, though, is worse than God just being absent. This is far worse than just the absence of God. God the Father is present at the cross. 
but he is only present to judge, to condemn, to punish. That's what that darkness that Mark records, this great unnatural darkness that fell upon the land, that's what it indicates. Light is God's life and rescue. Darkness is his judgment, his wrath. You see, at the cross, a great funnel of all the just judgment of God against all the filth, the wickedness, the pride, the impurity, the deceitfulness, the selfishness of humanity, all of it was funneled down into one moment in history and on one man's head. Jesus Christ did not just endure the absence of God on the cross. He endured the intense, unimaginable, unbearable punishment of God for all sin on his head in that moment. These verses describe the ultimate spiritual torment. These verses describe hell. So verses 1 to 2 describe what Jesus experienced on the cross. Sin, curse, and judgment. And extraordinarily, verses 3 to 5 show how Jesus responds. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Now, although this psalm is primarily a psalm that teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ, he does also serve as the model for believers when we feel abandoned by God, confused by God, struggling to understand God's delay in delivering us. And so we can also learn from how Jesus endures. I mean, how do you respond when life feels confusing or painful and, and God feels very, very absent and heaven's door seems closed? Well, Jesus turns his agony into prayer. And note that each time there is an emphatic, yet you, or but you, at the start. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. It's the tension in these verses of faith and experience. Everything about Jesus' life right now screams, you can't trust God. He has abandoned you. Don't trust him. He has nothing for you. But Jesus has locked the word of God into his heart. And so Jesus speaks truth to himself on the cross. He doesn't listen to, he speaks truth to himself. And he proclaims the truth about God as he prays. He knows God saves those who trust in him. It's the drumbeat from Genesis to Malachi of the Old Testament. God saves his people. God saves his people. Every page of the Bible teaches that God saves his people. Okay, step back for a moment. How does this is my son whom I love turn into my God, my God, you have forsaken me? How is it possible for God's savior king to suffer this judgment and curse? Because Jesus lived a perfect life. Well, we've been studying Galatians quite recently, and back in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, the answer was given to us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. In other words, this is not God's saviour king, oops, failing, being defeated. This is God's saviour king winning his mightiest victory against our greatest enemy. Not a physical battle against the Philistines or the Amalekites or whoever, but, but he is facing the wrath of God and the accusations of Satan. No one can escape the judgment of God. No one can escape the curse of death that your sins and my sins deserve. And so our king did the only thing possible to save us. He came down and became a man. And he absorbed that punishment himself. He bore our curse, our judgment, our death, our hell. And he bore it in our place for us. He absorbed it all until there was nothing left for you or for me to endure. This is not Jesus being defeated in this psalm. This is how Jesus is victorious. You've forsaken me, but you always delivered your people. And extraordinarily, he was doing it even then. Secondly, I am despised for trusting you, but where else can I turn? Now, the second section moves really from focus on spiritual torment of being cursed by God to the emotional torment that Jesus endured at the hands of the crowds as he's cruelly mocked. So verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. In the Bible, a worm is an utterly insignificant creature. God the Son, who millions of angels bow to, became insignificant, became nothing. As one writer puts it, I am becomes I am a worm. Extraordinary. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Which is bitterly ironic. He is dying because he obeys and trusts the Lord. It's the eternal plan of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the Son would come and become a man and die on the cross and not be rescued by the Father as he died. It is because he trusts God that he's not being delivered. Well, Jesus reflects on how far from the stories of Scripture he is right now. But again he responds by turning to God, verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. This time he's not so much considering the history of Israel, how God rescued the Israelites in the past. He's considering now his own life, how God has always been his God providing for him. And so he cries to the faithful God of the Bible who's been his God every day of his life. Verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. God feels far off and danger is very, very near. But even when God feels absent, and even when it doesn't feel like faith is working or prayer is getting through, still he trusts, still he obeys, still he prays. These are extraordinary truths. I was, uh, I was struck uh, this week by, uh, by something that just seemed so similar. The, I'm sure you saw that awful terrorist incident in southwest France. 
and Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram, who was the, the French commander. He looks magnificently French there, doesn't he? But what a man. What an extraordinary man. He's a lieutenant colonel. He was surrounded by armed police, and he was managing the incident. But there were a couple of people already dead, and there's the crazed jihadi who's armed inside the supermarket with one female hostage. Now, the lieutenant colonel is perfectly safe, surrounded by armed men. There is no way that his life is in danger at that point. But he voluntarily stepped out and did the only thing that would save that woman, which is that he took her place. And so he stepped out of his safety, took off his gun, and he went and he was killed so that she could be saved. What an utter hero. What an extraordinary action. And you see, at any moment on the cross, Jesus could have just said, enough! And at that moment, billions of angels would have descended in flaming fury on the world and all humanity would have been consumed in a righteous judgment and Jesus returned to glory in heaven. At any moment, it was in his power to do that. And instead... The crowd mocks. He trusts in God, let God save him, but he refused to let God save him. He actively had to stop it happening in one sense. The natural thing would be for God's perfect son to be saved. But he would not let that happen. Instead, he stepped down from safety. And he took our place and the death that we deserve so that we could be saved. He gave himself for you and for me. What an extraordinary hero. The first verses dig into his spiritual agony, the second into his emotional torment, and now finally in 12 to 21 we see physical destruction. I am devoured, but you will deliver me. The agony, the physical agony of crucifixion is described with poetic power. Verse 12 Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Why does he choose images from the natural world at this point? Bulls, lions, wild dogs. I think David Attenborough has given us the answer again and again and again. Watch planet Earth or nature's great events and there is spectacular beauty and tenderness to be seen. But you cannot miss the pitiless savagery if you watch it. Watch a great white shark tearing a young wounded seal into pieces. Or a pride of lions pick off a young wildebeest that's just not quite old enough to be able to run quickly. Pick it off, separate it from its mother, and start eating it before it's even dead. Well, that famous scene from Planet Earth 2 with the racer snakes and the lizard that had people so traumatized that they said there should have been a warning on the program. We've been so, we're so used to seeing, you know, cat videos on YouTube that we've just forgotten what nature is like. But nature, red of tooth and claw, is a brutal place. A brutal place. Jesus was beaten when he was crucified with a savagery that was frankly subhuman. 
Most of the time, we express our loathing for God in in more civilized, middle-class ways. Uh, We ignore God or we usher him politely to the edge of life, uh, just on Sundays, if that's all right. Or we replace him with ideas about God that are more acceptable to us and our culture. But sometimes the mask slips. I was reading this week uh, comments of uh, Kingsley Amos, the, the famous atheist. And he, um, somebody said at his funeral that they'd uh, said to him, oh, so you don't believe in, uh, in God? And he'd said, oh, it's more than that. I hate him. I hate him. The mask that sometimes slips of our loathing of a God who says he has a right over our lives was thrown away completely at the cross. Humanity expressed our furious hatred of a, of a being who dares to declare that he has the right to tell us what to do. That he has ownership of us just because he made us. How dare he? And with savage, vindictive cruelty, when we had God in front of us in human flesh, we tore him apart. We destroyed him because we wanted to be free to do whatever we wanted to do. And Jesus bore it all. As we reach uh, verse 14, his life is really ebbing away. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Did you notice that extraordinary word in verse 15? You. You. You, God, lay me in the dust of death. Surrounded by soldiers, mocking crowds, baying religious leaders. But Jesus knows that ultimately God alone is sovereign. And it is God alone who can lay him in the dust of death. Verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. It's extraordinary, verse 16. They pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented. It was hundreds of years before crucifixion would be invented. And yet he can write those words. Verse 17. All of my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Here is Jesus stretched out, fully exposed, and yet no one can see who he really is. 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Which is a very odd detail to record. But I think the point is you don't start sharing out someone's possessions until they're dead. You don't divide things until the will has been read. But the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross, where he is dead, if he's on a cross, he is as good as dead. And so we can start dividing up his possessions. And so really by the end of verse 18, he is a dead man. The will has been read, possessions divided, and yet, and yet the voice of faith has not been extinguished quite yet. The first section of the psalm doesn't finish with lament or a cry of despair, but a prayer of faith in God. There is something, though, very desperate about these final prayers, 19 to 21. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. 
You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Staccato verbs cry out to God. as a, It's like a drowning head just emerging above the waves. Help me, deliver me, rescue me, save me. Even as he has made sin, even as he's forsaken by God, even as he's tortured to death by the people he came to save, even as death opens its jaws to swallow him, even then he trusts God, he obeys God, and he prays to God. Rescue me. Save me. As we read these words, we have read the experience of Jesus, of God in human flesh, submitting to death. What it felt like for him to kneel alone in the garden the night before he died, and the awful dread of what was to come began to weigh in on him. What it felt like for him to see his friends and his companions, people for whom he was pouring out his life, abandon him, desert him, deny him. What it felt like for him, who used his power to heal and to save, to be beaten and flogged into a bloody pulp by a baying mob of soldiers. What it felt like for him to stagger up the hill of Golgotha with the filth, the corruption, the wickedness of human sin engulfing him and weighing him down heavier and heavier with every step. What it felt like for him to be hated, mocked and spat upon by those he created and loved and longed to save. What it felt like for him to be nailed to a cruel wooden cross through hands and feet and hauled up in naked shame and agony before the crowds. What it felt like for him who's only known the Father's delight for all eternity to look up to heaven and see only wrath and judgment pouring down upon him. Look, the only thing we can do if we understand these words is to bow down in worship, that he would endure that for you and me. So pray that the Spirit would use these words to deepen your reverence, your awe, and your wonder. And will you not love him and give your life to him who gave his life for you? Bow down in worship is the first thing. But secondly, look up in trust. This psalm helps us to trust God better, and I think there are three things in particular. His word, his forgiveness, and his love. His word, his forgiveness, and his love. Let me explain. Now, first, obviously, we should get a deeper confidence in his word, the Bible. If God can write words like that through David a thousand years before the death of Jesus and bring about their fulfillment then you can trust this book. You can trust his word. Secondly, look up in trust about his forgiveness. I think there is something particularly helpful as we wrestle with God's forgiveness in this psalm. Something, in fact, that you don't get, to my mind, from reading the gospel accounts of the death of Jesus by the eyewitnesses or the doctrine of the death of Jesus explained by Paul and the other apostles in the New Testament letters. 
I think you get something from this that deepens assurance of forgiveness in a particular way. And that is that I think the awfulness of the cross presses in on us here in particular. Now, how does that help with a sense of forgiveness? I think, if you're honest, all of us who are Christians have times when we wonder whether we're forgiven because the filth of our sin, the depravity of our heart, or the stubborn rebelliousness, the hardened nature of our wills, shocks us. And we worry that my sins are just too great to be forgiven. That one man's death, once, is that really enough for my sin, my heart, my filth? We worry our debt hasn't been paid in full in the darkness sometimes. But then you read Psalm 22 and the horror that Jesus endured. Does that sound to you like a half measure? Does that sound to you like something was left unpunished as we read it through? Does that sound to you like part of the curse of judgment, well, was left out? See, oddly, to use this word, there is something wonderful about reading of the horror of the cross as it's spelled out in this psalm. Because when you see quite how awful the experience was, you realize oh, this must have been full punishment. This must have been full payment. And so this must be full forgiveness for you and for me. Now at this point, let me just address those of us who are not yet Christians. What we read here of Jesus' experience on the cross is a foretaste of what we will endure in judgment in hell. Now, don't mishear me. God is not a torturer. He won't inflict suffering in the, in the gleeful way that Jesus' enemies did on him. But to face God's eternal judgment for my sin, to be cut off from his light and his love for all eternity, will be physical, emotional, and spiritual torment beyond imagining. It is a fate that by justice, all of us here in this room and all of us on this world ought to face. But it is a face, a fate that none of us need to endure. You see, Jesus came to be cursed and die precisely so that you wouldn't have to endure that. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ for the first time tonight... then you will never, ever face God's justice again. You are free and forgiven. Third, and I'll close with this, we see more than just our forgiveness here at the cross. We also see God's love. All that Jesus endured, all that he endured and suffered. Why? Not because he didn't have the strength to resist it. That's not why he suffered so much. It wasn't a lack of strength. It was because his love was so strong, so strong that he was willing to endure anything to save you. He loves you with an undying, eternal, unbreakable love. 
He was willing to go to hell to save you for heaven. If you look up to the cross and you know just one thing, then know that God loves you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you and praise you that we see into the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ in these awesome words. And we pray that we would be moved to understand the depths of his love for us, the awfulness of the justice that comes upon sin and the wonder of the forgiveness that has been given to us. Amen.